Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number, oh my goodness, what episode are we up to? 1,256, I believe, if I'm correct. And it is entitled The Adventure of the Return of the Martian Sussex Vampire. We've been running out riffs of that particular name because we've got Lucy Sussex on board today. I think the last couple of times we've done, we've expanded upon the theme. Our podcast title is More Spotters from Mars. I am Rob Jan and our co-host Megan McHugh is not with us today and we wish her well. Not feeling too too good today. Now, uh, just wanted to mention we were talking quite extensively about um, Tom Holland as Spider-Man and after what turned out to be a tugging at the silken web, Sony and Marvel have reached an agreement that keeps movie Spider-Man in the Marvel cinematic universe. Thwippy, as they say. This means that the third Tom Holland Spidey movie will take advantage of it being set in the MCU and that also Holland will play Webhead in at least one MCU mainstream movie. I did not think that Kevin Feige would give up that easily. It's all in the suits and not the super suits. Now, have you seen that the BBC has released a trailer for its War of the Worlds miniseries, which places the story of the Martian attack on Earth around the turn of the 19th century? Honestly, I am so bored with everything being so bloody retro. If Herbie G. Wells had wanted to stage his seminal alien invasion with steampunk milking stools, fighting chocolate box soldiers, he would have written it that way. Which, of course, he did back in 1897, riffing off the British colonial genocide of Indigenous peoples in, well, close to home for us here in Australia, Tasmania. A technologically more well-armed, industrial-backed civilization wipes out the... Inverted commas, primitives. I do wonder if Wells turned the tables with the additional impetus that must have been relatively fresh in his mind of several well-known recent historical examples of the indigenous folks successfully, if temporarily, fighting back. Native Americans at the Battle of Little Bighorn, Zulus at Isandawana, and the Italian defeat by Ethiopian forces at the Battle of Adwa in 1896. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things we need to talk about War of the Worlds. But, you know, it always seems to me that it's, in in reality, it's Earth invading Mars. So we'll have a little bit of music here, Spirit and Opportunity by Philip Glass from the Roving Mars documentary soundtrack. And, of course, those are little guys that we sent there and were currently, or perhaps not quite so currently now, wreaking havoc amongst the life forms there on the Red Planet. Hello, this is Graham Bond and my nemesis, the old fat army jack on Triple R. Of the Philip Glass soundtrack for Roving Mars. And that was the uh, the one 
that um, Steve Squire had some input in, never mind about the fact that he also uh, was the principal scientific investigator for the Martian, <laughs> not the advance, well, I suppose it is, the, the Terran conquest of Mars. Now, there's a whole bunch of things that we can talk about, about War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells' classic science fiction novel, that man who was pioneering so many different tropes in our genre. I mean, really, Mary Shelley got the main one, (laughs) which is science gone very wrong, and then Wells and Verne vacuumed up the rest of them so that we are in debt to their legacy today. Now, I have a new book in front of me, and it's The War of the World's Battleground Australia, clandestine press, and it's edited by Steve Proposhk, Christopher Sequeria and Bryce Stevens. It's got 15 short stories in it, including ones by Jack Dan, Janine Webb, Lindy Cameron with Kerry Greenwood, Narell Harris, Rick Kennett, Carmel Bird and Sean Williams, amongst others. And all those names are familiar to us from genre fiction, including crime fiction too in Australia. And there are three sections in this book that's set into the, it's divided into the past, present and future. The past being the 1890s Martian invasion and then now and the future being what it is in this case. A very far future in some particular moments in the book. Now, Lucy Sussex is with us today. She is the long-term Australian resident writer from New Zealand initially, uh, a novelist, an anthologist and short story writer, a book reviewer and a literary literary archaeologist. We've had Lucy in before. G'day, Lucy. G'day, Jack. Now, uh, we have her story called The Inconvenient Visitors or An Unrestful Cure. So you have to have a subtitle in that. Oh, yes, because that's very much late 19th century. Um, You know, every novel had to have a had to have a subtitle. So mm-hmm. The Unrestful Cure was actually referencing Saki, who was another great writer of that period. And Saki had a story called How Someone Wants a Rest Cure and He Gets an Unrestful Cure Instead. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to write a story about a sanitarium, when, um, which is a bit disrupted when the Martians turn up. Just a bit. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, of, of course, being uh, the subtitle of the book is uh, Battleground Australia, so naturally place features quite heavily here in the story. Now, because your story is set in Hazelmere, was there any reason for setting it in that particular place? Oh, it's... Um, I've actually not read the original War of the Worlds, and I, so I got down to the library. What? No, I hadn't. So I, And I read it, and I thought... My God, what a sense of place! Because you could actually these are real places in yeah. England, and you know, invaded by Martians. And apparently, Wells went cycling around the countryside and observed things and people he didn't particularly like, so he could kill them off uh-huh. in the book, as one does. Oh, all authors do that. Oh yes, <laughs> it's one of the few pleasures of the game. <laughs> um, and I thought, okay, great sense of place. And I thought, where can I? Where's a place that I know quite well that I can add Martians? And so I decided to make it um, Yarra Glen area. Uh-huh. And there is, in fact, a um, there was an old old guest rest guest house on the hills um, above on Skyline Road on Christmas Hills, and that was called Windermere. And my grandfather used to visit there. And I thought, okay, I'll turn that into a rest cure and then play a sanitarium and then let's see what happens. Because you're a literary archaeologist, uh, amongst other things, I 
what was the last one I remember reading of you? It was in that vein, um, Blockbuster, the story of the mystery of the handsome cab. Yep. Um, which was a, a, a huge hit back in the what, 1880s? I, yep, it was Melbourne's. It was the first um, international bestseller in the crime genre and it was all set in Melbourne. Made into a movie too. Yes, <laughs> and um, and uh, actually several movies which were lost in the silent era, but there was a more recent telemovie. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, well, we've, in, that, in that respect, um, there have been so many spin-offs that we know of of... Um, of uh, War of the Worlds, uh, Orson Welles' 1938 uh, radio drama for Halloween, um, big and low-budget live-action Hollywood and beyond movies. Uh, it's not just Hollywood that cranked them out. Animated television series, uh, an animated movie, I think a 3D one called Goliath. I think we reviewed that well, about a year ago on the show. Dear me. Mm. Jeff Wayne's iconic rock opera, of course. Uh, you, you really can't struggle around without running into what I essentially call professional fan fiction based on the War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah. I mean, Wells had this ability to basically tap into something that went very deep. Mm. And he did that with the time machine where he won the original... One of the few original ideas in fiction, oh, let's have a time machine instead of people dreaming about the past. (laughs) Let's go there. Yeah, let's go there. And then, oh, let's go into the future too. And it's full of... um, very odd crabs and um, devolved <laughs> humans. Crabs scuttling across um, denuded shores with uh, under a dying red sun, yeah. something and, like that. And he, had the, <laughs> and he had the ability to really tap into, so that's why he was such a, an important writer mm-hmm. for quite a period of time. And I think he resonates even still um, because... Actually, I remember a pastiche. Uh, Christopher Priest did one called The Space Machine where he managed to include that time machine trope while being a prequel and a sequel to War of the Worlds. Yeah, there's there's been quite a bit of fanfic, which mm. is actually quite why it was quite... Professional fanfic. <laughs> exactly, and um, which is why it was quite fun to sort of take the whole idea and see where it ran, yeah. for, ran where it could go. But there's another aspect to this whole story in that the... Um, this is very much the War of the Worlds set in Australia. Uh-huh. And according to the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, the first alien invasion sto- novel was was by was the Germ Growers, uh-huh. which was by Canon Robert Poppet- Potter, who was a canon of St Paul's Cathedral set in Melbourne. And it's the closest thing. It's a bit like C.S. Lewis and Perilandra, so it's a me- metaphysical novel. Uh, set in Australia, in which an evil being called Signor Niccolo Davelli is breeding, is set, is in the outback, um, set, setting up for bacteriological warfare, uh-huh. and he's thwarted by our two noble heroes and their and their you know their loyal indigenous sidekick. Um, Shades ab- of H. Rider Haggard. Absolutely, it's very Haggardish. In fact, the cover has got um, you know Arctic. Waste, a Frankenstein. It's got a, um, it's got spears and guns and shields, and um, and a, and a, and an air machine. And my and you know it was published in England in 1892. And it's just possible that H. G. might have seen it because two ideas: Australian setting and germ warfare. But H. G. being a scientist as opposed to a cleric approaches it differently because mm-hmm. he approaches it from a scientist's point of view and you think, okay, what happens? He's, 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 
heard the reports of smallpox, what smallpox did in Australia or whether it possibly was or what was not deliberately introduced and there's evidence on both sides. And he, so he's, he starts playing with this and then he comes up with the idea, oh yes, what's going to defeat the, the Martians? Well, wow, um, disease, earth diseases, which they're not Spoiler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> everybody know. Everybody must know this. Yeah. Um, and you bought actually a copy of the book in. Is that from the 1890s? Yeah, that's an 1892 edition, uh-huh. and it was in my grandfather's collection. Oh, really? And my grandfather also was an Anglican cleric, so it's possible they knew each other. It's got an inscription in there, uh, 1897 Christmas. So that's like, it's actually War of the Worlds inscribed for that um, that era. I hope there's no germs on it. Mm. I, hope, I, th- I think it's safe. <laughs> yeah, everything on there is long. That's what they said about the Martians after the first invasion. Actually, that air machine on there, that's very much um, uh, Robur, the air conqueror, sort of um, uh, dirigible with um, uh, propellers on it driving it horizontally and vertically. Yeah, and it uh, looks like a, a steamship as well. It's a beautiful copy. Awesome. Imagine finding that. Oh, I found it quite a while, long yeah. while ago and ended up writing an article about it. Oh, okay. But I didn't actually realise it was now being decided to be the first alien invasion novel. There were plenty of, um, of other uh, uh, invasion scare novels around about the time, um, I think you referenced them in your story, The Battle of Dorking and um, The Yellow Wave as well. Yeah. Oh, yes, there was a lot of paranoia about Battle of Dorking was about Germany invading England and that was quite prescient. And then the Australian paranoia about the Yellow Peril, which was fairly constant. Um, that was so, you know, there was some absolutely appalling alien invasion stories, but then human aliens rather than aliens from outer space. And that was the, innov- that was the innovation of Wells that he... Um, well, that was, and that he made it very believable. Canon oh. Potter didn't quite make it believable. Is it a good book? No. <laughs> Whereas Wells is obviously so iconic that it's going to last forever and a day. And I can imagine it because it, it keys into um, any particular time zone. And there are stories in the anthology War of the Worlds, Battleground Australia, that uh, that pick up on current events of refugee crises and. Uh, environmental degradation and all sorts of things. So you can actually just take this as a template and put it in any time. And I can imagine like in, you know, a hundred years or so if we have Martian colonies they will be, you know, this it'll be bandied about again. Oh, the Martians are going to invade us and so on. There'll be scare novels about them dropping rocks on us from uh, from the high frontier and so on. So it's very interesting the way that this one does transfer through history. There are some stories in um, uh, War of the Worlds, Battleground Australia, that I particularly liked. And, and I'm a bit of a student of, um, of this spin-off literature, and I can remember uh, uh, the Dispatches anthology that um, Kevin Anderson put together of War of the Worlds stories as well. Uh, and there are some in here that... Um, uh, your own story, of course, which has got this very charming sense of place and and people from that period. And I'm betting we'll get to that in a minute. But I'm betting there's some Easter eggs, if we may, if we may use that phrase, in there that I don't, I haven't quite grasped about the characters. I sense that there's something going on in the background there. Uh, some other stories um, 
include uh, Jack Dan's one where we find out what happened to Mark Twain, who was visiting Australia at the time of the invasion. Um, Set in the Athenaeum Library, which yes, is still here. Yes, well, well, it was rebuilt after the Martian invasion, obviously. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> I wonder which, which Premier set aside funds for that. Uh, and there's another story where we find out the Martians are no match for Australian elements. Um, I actually would have liked to have seen them... Um, uh, sucked dry of their own vital fluids by drop bears and uh, and other sorts of creatures, but never mind. There is a good one in there that's very elemental, and one set in the far future where giant snails are. I'm not going to use the word terraforming because that's not quite right. Um, Aries forming um, Earth in the outback a very long time after the invasion, which reminds me of um, Cordwainer Smith's. Um, uh, giant six sheep in the Norstrilia saga. Absolutely. Mm, very much like that. No, I like the way that people have run with the idea and then opened it up completely. Mm-hmm. So like Sean Williams, you get an entirely different take on the whole Martian idea. Mm. And that's the final story, which is based on Sean having a grant lucky beggar to go to Antarctica. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he's got a novel coming out of this. And then Karen Warren, who's... You know, I, I can get I can go all fangirl about Karen Warren, you know this idea of a far future, um, in which there is the vampirism is being used quite constructively by the Australians in a kind of trading economy with the mm. uh, Martians, and I thought, oh yeah, good old Australian know-how. Yeah, we'll just get some uh, some bailing wire and uh, a bit of. Um gaffer tape and fix it all up (laughs) maybe not quite like the way it is in the story no no (laughs) um i can remember you know uh, alan moore and the league of extraordinary gentlemen fought the martians in their their graphic novels kim newman has had martian survivors uh, down and out many years after the invasion playing villains in movies about the martian invasion yeah (laughs) there's quite a few of the stories in which the martians have actually survived and they've gone to the bottom of the ocean and they're um, doing all sorts of nefarious or not so nefarious things, and you know, I like the way in which people take it take it in completely wild directions, like mm. like um, caramel birds, one which is you know, creepy as hell. Mm, yes, it is. Uh, I can remember, of course, John Christopher and his tripod books. Now that seems to be a direct descendant. Mm, it is. Of, of the whole thing, television series based upon that, uh, Marvel comics to note the flavour of the decade. Uh, Kill Raven, Warrior of the Worlds. They had a comic book about that. <laughs> uh, that was really good, actually. Um, it was set in the future, and they had gladiatorial conflicts that the Martians were staging. Yeah, I think they might have actually been referencing the tripods thing just a little bit there. Uh, and of course, within six weeks of the novel's um, original serialisation in 1897, they had a, they had an unauthorised American sequel where Thomas Edison uh, took the fight back to Mars uh, and sort of kicked Alien Bottom out there in space. So it's always had this sort of immediate cachet of let's let's push out into it. Oh yeah, everybody wants to get involved in the idea, and and, you know, and good for them. Uh, though I think he probably nailed it the best because mm. um, you're reading that that book and it moves like a train it doesn't let up the suspense it doesn't let up the momentum and you can see he knows exactly what he's doing mm. um, and you can see because I've for my sins I've read a lot of turn of the century literature some of it extremely bad and you suddenly all of a sudden you come across Wells or Joseph Conrad and suddenly you think this is the new this is going to be the 20th century writing and it is because it's it's in a different 
level of imagination and mm. language, language and impact altogether. And tropes as well. These oh, are, yeah. These are brand new tropes in, for the most part, apart from the, the Shelley um, uh, science gone wrong one. Uh, and so it was destined to be with the, end, the focus in the 20th century on engineering and, and um, mechanical progress in society and, 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 and a new industrial revolution which actually had many ages within it, you know, the, the, the age of the streamlining, um, the space age, the nuclear age, uh, the computer age, they're all to do with that. So science fiction actually is the thing that holds up the mirror to those, those particular uh, skill sets within society. Oh, yeah, it's always sort of going on, you know, if this goes on, the classic extrapolation mm. and um, thinking it doesn't always get the science right or the exact details right, but it's looking into the future and that's something that we really need to do a lot more of. But looking with intelligence, speculation, it's Absol- not... This is the thing that um, non-mainstream people will often... Are there any listening to Zero-G today? There are probably at least some. Uh, they sort of go a little bit wrong and they, they shortcut to the word prophecy and that's not what it's about. It's about intelligent speculation. Yeah. Um, it's about sort of keeping an eye on what's happening in science, what's happening in the world. And you know, I used to read The New Scientist quite regularly for idea, for you know, just for crazy ideas because depending on it, you'd, you'd get something. Yes. And it wasn't that far in the future. I mean... But, I mean, it gets it, they get it wrong. I mean, nobody quite saw that the internet would um, turn into Orwell's five-minute hate. But mm. um, Or that we would give up our freedoms, our privacy, readily rather than having them taken from us by some dictator. We'd just say, here you go, here's yeah. the passwords, here's, here's everything we want you to know about us. And here's my cat, yeah. you know, 37 pictures of my cat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get things wrong, but it is does open a, a window into the future. And I think... You know, we really, people tend to, okay, present political climate seems to be people are very much looking into the past and we need to consider new paradigms mm. or we're stuffed. Yes. I mean, you know, being a futurist of a, a long-term futurist, uh, long enough to see many of the futures that we dreamt about either come true or not, uh, and ones that we were, you know, I mean, we're still waiting for our rocket packs, unfortunately. Uh, although, actually, I saw saying that I saw Adam Savage um, from MythBusters really collaborating with um, a British inventor, and they actually made a bullet-resistant flying Iron Man suit that you could actually navigate in, and it's an amazing piece of kit. So we actually can have those rocket pack type things. We probably can't use them because of about 50,000 anti-terrorism laws and, and so on. Yeah, I hate, what the think, hate to think what the traffic police would do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine that. Because the traffic lights in, in grids on two dimensions on the ground are complicated enough. We, know, we do have air traffic controllers for airliners, but this is individual. Wow. <laughs> um, another one I read recent, more recently was Stephen Baxter's 2017 sequel to War of the Worlds, The Massacre of Mankind. And he's had a, a really uh, detailed go at the whole thing, um, unpicking what would happen in the wake of the Martian invasion, which, interestingly enough, so, of course, does uh, War of the Worlds Battleground Australia with its three sections of the past, present and future. And one of the things I noticed about this was that the the uh, anthologised cadence of 15 short stories does remind me of um, reading the Wars, War of the Worlds well serial when it was serialised. It's got that kind of, um, of, of episodic kind of feel to it. If you yeah. go through War of the Worlds, it's very episodic. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, each of those stories you put, in which I congratulate the editors on putting the stories so well together so that they're like a dialogue and it, it's reaching into the future. Mm. Um, you know, we've lost some of the pleasure, the deferred... Um, you know, reading a serial and having to wait till the next, you know, the next yeah. instalment. Well, that's what Netflix is for. Yeah. <laughs> binge watching, and you, instead of binge watching, one drops each week. Yeah, I don't think people have that kind of self control anymore. Mm. But they impose it on you, then, mm. you know. <laughs> right. Oh, dear. So, yeah, I think they've done an excellent job with this. Is there a sequel planned? I <laughs> mean, we're talking about sequels. Why not? I don't know. Um, you'd have to see just how well it does. Mm. Um, the, the previous volume that these editors were involved in was um, a, um, was um, Sherlock Holmes, and of that course. and that did that did quite nicely, um, particularly with the Holmesian collectors. And um, no, the Baker Street Irregulars, yes, <laughs> absolutely. But then there's so much Holmes fanfic. Oh, there is. So much of that that you, you know you stop and just to list it would take you. Forever. In fact, there is uh, annotated Sherlock Holmes books. Uh, they're like three inches thick that do that. It's like, wow. <laughs> well, I think that the editors are probably going to come up with some new idea that they can let people's imagination play with. It might not be Wells, um, but it could be something equally as interesting. Mm-hmm. Unless Lind- Lindy Cameron, actually, because she has a story, story in the... Uh, in this book and in one in the Holmes one, and she references her Holmes mm-hmm. and Watson because, you, know, you know, Watson famously said, I have seen the Ballarat diggings in one of the Holmes books. You know, so maybe he meant postcards or maybe he actually went there, which is even more complicated, but it's, that's, that's the loophole that lets you write fan fiction, whether it be professional or not. Uh, I actually remember um, Manly Wade Wellman and his son wrote Sherlock Holmes's War of the Worlds back in 1975, and they managed to drag in um, Arthur Conan Doyle's other main character, one of his other main characters, uh, Professor Challenger, into that one. So it was uh, what would happen if Sherlock Holmes applied his uh, vast intellect, his own vast, cool, dry intellect, to the problem of the Martians. It's a fascinating story, that one, if you can ever get a chance to see that. I can't imagine Sherlock Holmes meeting up with Professor Challenger. I oh. think they'd hate each other on sight. It's... Um, Interesting. I'm not quite. Re- I don't quite remember if they actually meet each other in the story, which is it would be a shame. But nevertheless, <laughs> of course, they don't meet Brigadier Gerard, which mm. is the other Holmes uh, Conan Doyle character that nobody knows nowadays. Uh, but literary archaeologists, mm. no doubt, would. Uh, now, okay, I wanted to go back to your story, The Inconvenient Visitors or an Unrestful Cure, which uh, takes place in a Hazelmere sanatorium where people go for a rescue. Uh, I noticed that there was a phrenologist amongst the characters. Phrenology. Now, that's, 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 that's something that has to have a, a great history in uh, true crime and um, psychology. Why, why did you have that as a story detail? Oh, because it was um, – I was referencing a, a Melbourne novel um, called My Mysterious Life on – Melbourne and Mars, My Mysterious Life on Two Planets. And um, the writer of the book was, uh, was a phrenologist. That was one of his – his, um, and that was how he earned his living. And phrenology was a sort of pre-psychology which went on the idea that the bumps on your head predicated 
what sort of person you were. So if you had a bump here, on you know that was indicated that you're going to be a master criminal, uh-huh. or you had another one and you were and you were way too talkative for your, for your own good. And all sorts of people had their bumps done from George <laughs> Eliot, and um, it was. It, I mean, it was it was one of those one of those Victorian things that you know you couldn't readily de- detect the um, the science from the pseudoscience, just like spiritualism. Yeah. And Which even Arthur Conan Doyle fell prey to. Absolutely, hook, hook, line, and sinker. Mind you, he had good reason because of his son and um, and the war and everything. So you know, I guess that makes sense um, from his point of view at the time. But I think he later turned away from that. And then they made a television series about Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini busting fake spiritualists and stuff. <laughs> and then he got taken in by two little girls and who did collages of fairies. So. Mm. In the end, I think he abandoned some of the, his intelligence willingly. Mm, yeah. All right, well, not going to abandon intelligence entirely just yet, uh, but we'll have a, a track here which is highly relevant. Uh, we forgot to actually play a David Bowie track last week, and so we'll play Ziggy Stardust from David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy S and the Spiders from Mars. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Here we are back in the studio, Rob Jan and Lucy Sussex, talking about War of the Worlds, Battleground Australia, a book from Clandestine Press, which is an anthology of 15 short stories about the War of the Worlds, if it were fought in Australia, or at least it's happened overseas. Actually, one thing they mentioned in the book, um, uh, how good our telegraph service was. It so, was very good. Mm, so we hear everything about what's going on in, in England, as much news as can possibly come out during the, the Martian invasion, during the apocalyptic events there. But, you know, it must have been... Um, there's one of the stories in here, I forget which particular one, but there's, there's several ones that have this same sort of thing, with the mayhem going on in, uh, say, in Yarraville or something like that. Uh, people in the next suburb over mightn't actually know what was going on immediately. There's no mobile phones for people to be calling each other on. Well, you, I mean, OK, they could look at the skyline and yes. see fire and stuff. Mm. But, yeah, communication was not, was, was not as... Um, as instantaneous as it is now. Actually, I wonder, in that case, they could have somebody in uh, Yarraville could have penned a, a letter and popped it into the post box, and assuming that the post is still running in some way or form, it would, because they were like doing like 19 deliveries a day <laughs> out of Melbourne, so maybe it would, they would have got news by post. That's true, if the posties hadn't, hadn't all fled. <laughs> or been incinerated, yeah. Okay, um, now... Uh, with these kind of books, uh, anthologies, it's very difficult to get the balance of the stories right. And I think it was actually a good idea to split it up into the three sections mm. uh, because it gave you a look back at the invasion in progress, as it were, in Australia, and then they bring it into contemporary times. And there seems to be a lot in that particular section about um, survivors, and Martian survivors. Uh, and they also a lot of them seem to be single survivors. It's like you've got isolated pockets here and there, and there's one Martian here and another one there. They don't seem to survive in big groups. Well, I mean, like, I think it's a sort of... I'm just thinking about species mm. um, that get down to very low populations, and 
um, like the so you know Tasmanian tiger, but there's other other rediscoveries of animals that are thought extinct. So I think that's quite consistent. Relics po- populations. Yeah, exactly. Um, hmm. But that, that's it's not impossible. And they, and they reproduce by a kind of a fusion, um, the Martians. So. There is that. There's actually quite one quite raunchy story in there that plays up to all of the, the uh, the cliches about Mars needs our women sort of thing. Oh, Dimitri Kakmis. Yeah, that's a that's quite a horrific story. Uh, yes, how not to have sex? Yes, not with Martians in this case. Oh, that's so prejudiced. We've got such a an, an anti uh, anti Aries uh, <laughs> thing in there, and that, that we're bringing that back to uh, refugees and. Um, Invasive species in terms of uh, the Martian red weed that they bring with them. So many things that are that are highly relevant to Australia, and and you just think, this is these books are. It's a timeless sort of thing, the War of the Worlds, and it has been ever since it was written in the um, just before the nineteenth century. Did you did you have any trouble deciding what year to set your story in? Oh well, you had I think at one point. We were given the choice of past, present, future, mm. and they, there was a nudge that they'd like me to do the past, and I said okay, and then I go off and read, and then you know, can you, they go on to us a brief sketch of our ideas? So I went off, read the War of the Worlds, and, I, and then thought, okay, um, well, there's one unique Australian um, peril that could come in quite handy here. Mm-hmm. So you know, had a chat to a CFA bloke without giving away the end of the story too much and got a few details. Um, and then you, you give your rough, rough idea and then they say, OK, go for it. And there wasn't that much editing except that they, they you know, wanted to make you know, check the timeline so that the timelines didn't conflict and so you didn't have one author sending their story in, in a direction that would completely stuff ah. it up for the next writer along. So there was a degree of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a degree of sort of working out who was doing what. And so I take my head off to the editors for keeping this project under control because <laughs> it would, it's a bit like herding cats. Yes, yes, or, or Martians, Martian mm. cats in the case of War of the Worlds, Battleground Australia. Now, uh, you mentioned that um, you're working on something new because, of course, when people come in with a story in hand in a book, They've obviously moved on. What have you moved on to? I'm writing a biography of Mary Fortune. Um, it's co-authored with Megan Brown, who lives in Wollongong. And Mary Fortune was a Canadian woman who came to Australia in the gold rush and became a major crime writer. Mm-hmm. She wrote over 500 um, detective stories for the Australian Journal, which is a popular fiction magazine, which did, in fact, have some SF in it. Right. Um, and But it lasted from 1865 to the early 1960s, which was a pretty good run for, for a magazine in Australia. Yes, and they sort of drop off like flies. Absolutely. Well, the Australian Journal got it right because they realised that Australia liked local content and they liked crime. And she wrote crime stories set in Australia. But the other thing about it was that she wrote under a pseudonym. And um, when you started to investigate the pseudonym, you realised the real woman was really interesting in that she was a pioneer journalist. Um, she undoubtedly committed bigamy. She, there was one of her children, the 
was of dubious legitimacy and her surviving son went on to be, be a career criminal. So you've got true crime and fictional crime meeting. Uh-huh. She also had the bad habit of just about fictionalising everybody she met, including her <laughs> ex-husband. Um, so there was a lot of material there. So we're, so we're sort of writing separately at the moment. We're going to settle down for a huge editing session and see if we conflict. And you know, oh, okay, I'll do I'll do this year. Okay, well, I'll do that period. And um, I've been doing this really interesting research in the 1890s, and I found out, you know, another um, another crime he's done. I'm like, okay, fine, you write about that. So it's a process of negotiation. But I've never had a collaboration where you say, oh, look, I think this might be right, and Megan will go, oh yes, well, it dovetails with that story, and then you go back and. So it's like a, colla- a communication and, and really good fun to do. Wouldn't it be good to be able to do that with Wells? <laughs> oh, look, I think... Maybe not, actually. He had some funny reputations going on in his background. He was a bit of a pants man. Yeah. <laughs> but not Martian pants, hopefully. God, um, no. God no. Uh, the, the, the stories that uh, are in this book uh, range from um, pretty straightforward... Uh, Earth versus the aliens, to some quite deep psychological mm. drama as well. I thought, uh, and uh, I think it's to be com- commended to readers. War of the Worlds, Battleground, Australia, uh, edited by Steve Proposh, uh, Christopher Sequeria, and Bryce Stevens. It's from Clandestine Press, containing a book, at least one story by Lucy Sussex, uh, with a very interesting, I thought, twist, and I like that. Thank you. Very well with that. And an introduction by filmmaker Alex Proyas, hmm. which is uh, no mean feat, actually, when you consider it. And heaps of good, heaps of good illos, too. Yes, I noticed that. Uh, what's the story behind the illustrations? Um, well, the idea, they've been, these guys have been editors, have been working on the whole notion of not only having authors, but drawing in illustrators. And there's an awful lot of um, good illustrative um, talent out there, um, which people don't necessarily know about, and sort of when they put their minds to it, they can draw to order, mm. and they can also illuminate a story too. And so, on the cover is a sort of lovely, sort of sepia-toned, what appears to be a Melbourne street with uh, the Martians and mm. people fleeing, and um, it's suitably grungy. And so it's, these illustrations, I think, make create a whole extra level of um, interest. And also we're living in a very visual culture at the moment, um, and so I think that is important. Actually, this is... I don't know if it's something about the book, but about the printing process, but it feels granulated, and because it's very heavily... Uh, it's like charcoal in a way. It feels like soot, which would be appropriate in, yeah. the, in, the, in, the, in the story, um, or like, like the black smoke sort of that the Martians use... Um, particulated out upon paper. It's actually quite tactile. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, actually, the gem grows is quite tactile as well, the book, because it's um, you know, got sort of indented illustrations on the cover, so mm. you can... Yes, Lucy's uh, just fondling the, the germ growers, which is, um, uh, what was it, 1890s? 1892, so... 92, an original... Um, Invasion novel. We would call that science fiction since it's about biological warfare. Yeah, and uh, Niccolò Davelli turns out to be an agent of the devil who is you know, an alien. 
Okay, so Lovecraftian there, science fiction by way of fantasy almost. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, And, um, yeah, so uh, get out there and um, and pick up this book and uh, and have a read of it, especially if you're a War of the Worlds fan. But it it would probably, because War of the Worlds is so... I, I use the term marin, marinated deliberately in the Martian context into our culture that, um, you, you, like like Lucy, you could actually just pick it up and read it without having read The War of the Worlds. Okay, you've got to tell me, how did you avoid reading The War of the Worlds all these years? Uh, it was because when I was doing a thesis and I was writing on um, when The, um, the Sleeper Wakes, which was a... Yeah. Um, and that... It's not one of Wells' best novels, but it's interesting because it's about how he wrote a novel about development of of, of air air flight, and then air flight went and happened, and it wasn't quite how he imagined. Mm. Um, like he had in the serial version, people taking a cocktail of strychnine to um, deal with altitude sickness, not apparently knowing that strychnine is cumulative is a cumulative poison. Uh-huh. So they would have gradually poisoned themselves. Like using white lead for makeup. Absolutely. Um, so, and then ten years later, he, he rewrote it as the as the sleeper wakes, and and basically revised all the air travel to make it more. And mm, it was a bit of a meh exercise. Um, and so that slightly put me off Wells for a while because if you really de- delve deeply into some something, but um, that said. Um, the War of the Worlds is a much more superior novel. Oh, yeah, he's there. Is there are ones of his that stand out? The Time Machine, uh, The Invisible Man. Maybe not quite so much, but um, you know, uh, and, and a lot of good short stories too. The ones about the um, the land ironclads, about tanks and stuff. That you just think, oh, that's very prescient of the man. Uh, he also wrote a novel called Anne Veronica, which was about women's sexual freedom. Oh. Um, which, okay, he had an interest in, but it was a sort of positive con- contribution to the um, debate of votes for women and women not having to have a subservient position in law. Um, and he also wrote a lot of quite witty social novels as mm. well. He could do that, Mr Kipps and um, Mr Polly, yeah. if I've got those titles no, right. No, no, that's right. And so he, he was a bit, but I think he was actually strongest and most enduring in his science fiction and perhaps least enduring when he got into a political p- polemic where he sort of, <laughs> yeah. his muse deserted him. They all, they all, they all have a shot at that um, Kipling and, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just something you had to do if you're part of the empire. Absolutely. Actually, he came to Australia mm-hmm. and there's a lovely photo of him with a koala Okay. Yeah. Of course there is. And he got into a bit, little bit of a strife because at that time the Australian government was a little, was a little pro-appeasement as in Chamberlain. And Wells said, Hitler is a dangerous man, don't be ridiculous. And this was this did not go over well, but he was perfectly right. Yeah, of course. Didn't have to actually be a writer of um, science fiction to speculate about that particular part of the future. I know. All right, well, thank you very much, Lucy. Much lovely, appreciated. Lovely to talk. Mm. And War of the Worlds Battleground Australia Clandestine Press is out now and can be uh, accessed online as well too. Is there a digital... Um... Yeah, there's an e-edition. Mm-hmm. Of course there is. <laughs> all right, now we'll have a track here which is uh, a tribute to uh, Spacemen of All Stamp, uh, Ballad 
to a spaceman by Julie Eckler from her Traveller album. Thanks a lot, Lucy. Thank you. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.